Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry. We engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Holly Lynn S. Lee, Distinguished Professor of Mathematics and Statistics Education at North Carolina State University. In spring 2023, Dr. Lee is in residence at Baylor University as the recipient of the Robert Foster Cherry Award for Great Teaching. Dr. Lee earned her BS in secondary mathematics education from the Pennsylvania State University in 1991, her Master's of Arts in Education in Secondary Education Mathematics in 1995 from the College of William and Mary, and her PhD in mathematics education from the University of Virginia in 2000. Prior to her work at the university level, she served as a K-12 teacher. Among her many teaching awards and honors, Dr. Lee was named in 2020 as a fellow of the American Statistical Association in recognition for excellence and advocacy in data science and statistics education and the professional development of teachers. She was honored with the UNC Board of Governors Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2019-20 and named a fellow of the International Society for Design and Development in Education in 2019. Dr. Lee has secured millions of dollars in external and internal grant funding, and she has committed much time and energy to creating open educational resources, offering free online courses for educators from around the world and sharing research-based multimedia materials via Creative Commons licensing. Her scholarship and writings include over 100 journal articles, book chapters, and conference proceedings, four co-authored books, and a co-edited book on scholarly practices and inquiry in the preparation of mathematics teachers. We are delighted to have Dr. Lee on the show to discuss teaching future teachers, creating resources for teacher development, and much more. Well, Holly Lynn Lee, thank you for joining the show today. Congratulations uh, are or in order first, I think, here uh, on your being named the 2022 Cherry Award winner, which, if I have my facts straight, is, a, is both a, a national teaching award, mm -hmm. but also the most significant monetary prize in the realm of teaching awards uh, as well. So what do you think that this award uh, demonstrates or, or recognizes in your own teaching? Yeah, so first I just want to say I've been so incredibly honored and humbled to um, to be recognized for this award and to even be nominated when my university wanted to even nominate me for it back in 2020. So this is it's a, it's a, it's a process. Yeah, it's a, it's a process. Um, and, um, you know, I really think that. Um, so, so I, I just came back from my experience at Baylor, um, from being able to be there as, uh, in residence and um, had a lot of time to kind of reflect on. So, 
you know, what did this award kind of, you know, recognize uh, through my teaching? And I really feel like um, over the years, I certainly have impacted many students, both undergraduate and graduate. I've been at this for 23 years now. Um, you know, so directly in my college classrooms, I, I think I bring a lot of compassion and creativity as well as an innovative spirit um, to my teaching. I'm not afraid to fail. So I'm not afraid mm -hmm. to try new things. Um, so, you know, I, I really consider myself an educational designer. And that means um, from my perspective that I take seriously designing the tasks that my students will engage in, the tools that they'll use, whether they're electronic digital tools or whether they're physical tools, um, the questions that I'm going to ask and like thinking creatively and carefully about how I'm going to orchestrate those interactions in those learning moments um, in my classroom. So, you know, I, I that's all from whenever, even when I was a K-12 teacher, I really thought very deeply about my pedagogy. Um, and in the past 15 years, I've really been able to ramp up these teaching practices to develop instructional materials and to co-design different software tools with others, um, developing things like video cases of classroom practices. And all of those I've been able to, to package in ways that I can um, um, give to faculty at other universities to use in their courses. And so I think that that's a lot of what I'm being recognized for, that it's not just my impact at NC State with the students that I, I teach every year, um, but it's the fact that one, the, the students that I teach are teachers themselves, so they go out and reach more, reach more students, but that um, I've been able to kind of share my pedagogical strategies along with my collaborators. None of this has been done in isolation. Um, um, to, to be able to share that with faculty at other universities, package those materials and be able to then have, you know, my ideas and my collaborators' ideas influence those learning moments for students at other institutions. I've heard of the post-tenure and or post-promotion slump where, you know, a faculty member maybe just sort of feels like a little bit of a letdown after after that great recognition, like what's yeah. the next, what's the next thing? And here at, at Baylor, we have a status known as master teacher, okay. which I which I joke and say it's it's the award after which Baylor says you can't win any more awards. We're done giving you awards, basically, for your for your teaching. Like this is getting out of hand. Let's just you know give you give you this last huge one and and call it a day. Um, yeah. So how do you how do you maintain after winning an award like this, as pr prestigious as this? How do you maintain like the fire in the belly to do? I think actually that innovative is, spirit. I think it has actually lit it even stronger. Um, nice. Because it's it's returned me. It's returned me to my roots of of the college classroom itself. So, because so many so much of my recent work has been in packaging materials to be able to do faculty training and train and educating faculty to use these at other places, you know, um, th this has reminded me I'm a classroom teacher, mm. and you know, I, I, there's still so much more that I can learn and do in the college classroom that I want to I want to continue to do and. And that I also, within my own discipline, I focus on um, statistics and data science education, and those disciplines are really taking off. And so I see, I see it as an opportunity to really have an impact, both in the K-12 um, education space, but as well as the collegiate um, space of, you know, educating the, the students of tomorrow um, and bringing that creative spirit to that, you know, to that task. 
So as you mentioned, you were on campus here at Baylor for the spring of 2023, just wrapped up that that semester. Tell us about mm -hmm. the, the courses that you taught and uh, what were the things that you were trying with Baylor students? Yeah, so um, I got two new course preps um, for my time at Baylor. So one of them was um, critical issues in mathematics education, and those were, that was for juniors um, that are preparing to be middle and secondary um, mathematics teachers. And um, in that class, I was really able to kind of think about, well, what are some of the kind of critical issues that are that are happening right now? So that's a class that can't stay stale mm -hmm. <laughs> because issues always change. Yeah. Um, and, and we spent some time at the beginning of the semester um, where I was hearing from the students, you know, so you've had some field experience right now. What, what do you see happening out in classrooms? What concerns you even from your not so distant, you know, high school experience? What, what are some of the concerning things? And we built a lot of the curriculum around that of like, okay, what, what, what are you concerned about? They were very concerned about how do you use technology appropriately? Um, you know, the, the pandemic really kind of amplified that in um, math classrooms in particular. And how do you, how do you um, uh, really kind of focus on um, keeping, keeping students engaged when there might be lack of motivation? And, um, and, you know, the whole talk about learning loss for students, uh, I don't really like that phrase at all. And so we, we, we dismantled that phrase uh -huh. um, in my class. And it was like, no, they actually learned a lot during the pandemic. It may not have been the minutiae skills that the educational system wanted students to learn, but they learned a lot. <laughs> and, um, you know, so anyway, so that was one of the classes. And that, that gave me an opportunity to kind of dive into a lot of um, material around particularly access and equity in, in math education and how do we approach things from a strengths-based perspective rather than a deficit view mm -hmm. of, of learning um, and to really help my students with that. And of course, because I'm very focused on the teaching of statistics and data science, that was a critical issue that I wanted to bring in as well so that they were aware of some of the um, um, changes in um, um, suggested changes for creating different pathways for students in high school, where, um, you know, bringing in more math modeling, bringing in more statistics, more data science, more application-based learning um, that is going to meet the needs of all students, rather than just this march towards pre-calculus and calculus for all students, or most students, or, you know, whatever. But um, so that was, that was the, the critical issues class. The second class was data and chance. And it was for elementary and middle school um, pre-service teachers. These were mainly sophomores um, with a few juniors in there. And um, this, this class was very much focused on um, getting, getting these pre-service teachers comfortable with ideas around statistics, around data, around probability, so that they can create those learning moments, those, those um, data collection activities, those analysis activities in their classrooms with students. Um, in my, um, it was, even though this is a focus area of mine, I had never taught a class specifically aimed at elementary and middle school teachers, um, you know, for the entire semester. So mm -hmm. I purposely didn't choose a textbook and I created the class on the fly. I really took the opportunity to kind of listen every day to what they were, what they were talking about, what they were struggling with, the, the, the things that the interactions that I had orchestrated 
how well were they going and what, what, what was I going to have to do that next class period to build from that, to build from that moment, rather than feeling like I was stuck to a particular textbook. So that yeah. was, that was an invigorating and challenging experience, but, um, um, I wouldn't have traded for, traded it for the world. I love that idea of, of being really flexible with, with the, the course and, and your yeah. course design. Like you've got ideas of what you want to accomplish, but like how and in what order and how long you spend on this or that can be negotiated. Did you feel like it was that, did, did that create any issues for students who desired more structure, which we know many students really do? Um. So I, I don't think in the moment it was, it was because um, I was also very good at, you know, we, it was a class that was met Monday, Wednesday, and I set up a, I set up a structure where um, by um, the afternoon of Wednesday, I would post materials that would, that had to be completed online between Wednesday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. So they knew there, they knew that structure that they yeah. would always get some things from me to be completing on their own. And that. Um, between Monday and Wednesday, I was really thinking carefully about what I thought was going to be the best learning things for them to do on their own between Wednesday and Monday. And sometimes that changed. And after class, I'd be like, okay, give me an hour <laughs> to go back to my office and make a few tweaks before you start on anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Give me an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Time me. Here we go. <laughs> well, people who know me well know that this is something that I that I harp on a lot, even though I also succumb to it. Is it's a little bit ludicrous that we that we plan out these 14, 15 weeks uh so far ahead of time before even having met our students many right. times. Like we've right. got this idea of exactly how this learning thing will will progress. It's right. it's kind of conceited when you think about it to approach it that way. Right, right, right. You know, and it's one of the things that I so particularly pre-service elementary um, teachers will often like self-report that they're not a math person, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm not a numbers person. I, I, I became an, I want to be an elementary teacher because I like, I want to be involved in literacy. You know, they, they, they tend not exclusively, it's not a generalization, but they, um, many, many of them feel much more comfortable in not math or science. You know? yeah. and, and they will tell you that. And so I, my, my number one learning goal was to make them love data and chance, you know, mm -hmm. and for them to walk away. I didn't care. Well, I did care, but I didn't, um, it didn't matter. It mattered a lot less to me how deep into the curriculum we got. It was more about making sure that the, that the meaningful experiences that they did have, were going to, we're going to make them, um, excited about it, excited yeah. about what they could do with their own students in their future classrooms and willing to pick up a book on their own. Right if they mm -hmm. needed to actually brush up or learn something more deeply. Yeah, that becomes the internal combustion for exactly. what they're actually going to do in their in their professional lives. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, it was it was really cute. One of the one of the best learning moments of the semester for that particular class. Um, you know, when I would write the weekly announcements, I would call them things like data doers, um, royal regressors, perfect probabilist. I would make up funny, you know, funny names for them. And um, one day after class in April, uh, I was leaving, I was putting the desks back together and um, on the sideboard, somebody had written, I love being a data doer. <laughs> and I took a picture of that and made it into stickers for the students and gave that to them at the end of the semester. 
and um, you know, first question on their final exam was, I am a data doer, true or false? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about easy points, right? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, but but I mean That's it's confident, it's confidence building. It's not yeah. easy, it's not approaching it as easy points. It's like, look, you know, I know some of you are so anxious about mm-hmm. even taking a test. Let's let that first question be one that that reminds you you're in this space and you can do this. Yeah. Well, you're already starting to touch on it, and you mentioned their their concerns about uh, student motivation as they get into their own classrooms and using technology in their in their own classrooms as well. What are some of the other challenges for for now te- uh, teaching and preparing teachers in in the K twelve sphere? Yeah. So, well, one of the challenges is recruiting teachers to come into that space mm-hmm. <laughs> to begin with. You know, I think as a system, we have to um, get much better at um, making it making it clear that teachers are professionals and that uh, you know that they are designers of learning opportunities for their students, and we need to treat them as such. And um, um, getting them excited, you know, excited to be able to come into um, a career in education and to be able to stay. So that's a that's a challenge right there. But I think as far as um, the you know some of the preparation, I was talking a little bit about elementary teachers. On the other end, with our secondary. Um, um, teachers, they often were highly successful in their um, own math learning, but not necessarily for the same kinds of reasons that, that we're trying to promote now. So they, so they may have been very successful because they were a rule follower. Mm-hmm. They liked getting those worksheets of 50 things that looked exactly the same because they could actually just regurgitate it out and do it. And they were successful at that. Yeah. And so it's a challenge when we start giving them, um, we as in math education faculty, start putting them in positions where they actually have to model some mathematics. They have to dig deeper into some concepts that kind of shakes their belief of, wait a minute, I used to be pretty confident in what I thought was mathematics and really helping them reshape a vision of what mathematics is that is probably a little different than the way they experienced it themselves. Um, so, um, you know, so working with secondary teachers, it, it, um, that bring, you know, that, that it's, a, it's a completely different challenge because uh, they come in with a lot of confidence and it's not like you want to break their confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, want, yeah. you, want, you want them to be confident, but you have to reshift and reshape their vision of what math and math teaching and and good pedagogy really is, because it's probably different than what they experienced. That sort of brings to mind, I don't know, uh, it escapes me who who coined this taxonomy, but uh, the difference that you're describing there is kind of like the performance learner versus the deep learner. So the performance learner is like, it's the learner that that oftentimes we we really enjoy having in college classrooms because they just want to do all the work and they That's never true. they That's never right. push they're back. A, they're, they're a pleaser. They want yeah. to be a professor. They want yeah. to do everything, every assignment that was given to them. Yeah, but at the end of the day, they're they, they frustrate us because they don't they're not interested in asking questions and yeah. finding out the internal workings of things. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So, so those are, th- those are some of the challenges, but, you know, I think that um, it, 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 interesting as it is, so, you know, the pre-service teachers now, and even some of the in-service teachers are digital natives. So they've grown up in a, in a digital world, mm-hmm. um, which 
is completely different than uh, you know the world that the, the prior generation grew up in as far as social media, the way you can stay connected to people with all of those pros and cons. And, um, and the way that the, the way that technology can accomplish things. So being, being able to help um, help teachers, pre-service teachers really think about, um, if I'm going to use technology appropriately, it's not it's not using technology just to do a computation. Technology is super easy for that. But how do I use technology to actually reorganize students' learning so that we're getting at those deeper conceptual whys and taking advantage of, of the fact that, um, like, for example, in data, that, that we can drag a variable onto a graph that we can create a graph that has three or four different variables on it and has and is using size and shape and, and color along with the axes to kind of communicate something and um, um, you know we can click on a click on a single dot and and be able to interrogate that dot and find out what is that case about like what state is that and what are some of the details about that and so we've got to we have to learn how to use the technology to go deeper mm-hmm. than just using it as a computational tool it's not unlike many of the conversations we're having about ai right now exactly. too, especially with exactly. writing and things like that yeah because that's right that's it right. can it can crunch it can crunch the letters now too not just the numbers <laughs> exactly yes and so then so then the questions that we ask have to be different mm-hmm. the, the 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 problem is no longer can you graph this function or can you graph this data you know can you create this scatter plot okay so what you can you know the computer yeah. can do that it's what interpretations and what interrogations can you do once that once that thing actually exists. Right. So what about the flip side? What do you like most about teaching that particular population of college students, those who are going to be future teachers? Well, I love it because um, they're in it because they care about the education of the future. So you don't have to do much convincing Mm -hmm. that um, that what they're doing, what they're preparing to do is a really that they need to take it seriously. That they need to um, to learn everything that they can. To and and they recognize that that it is a craft. That there are some things that we just can't like. You know, classroom management. Yes, there are some strategies that we can teach you, but in the end, it's these strategies along with your own personal, your personality, your yeah. comfort zone, your style. That's gonna. That's you know the relationships that you're gonna choose to build with your students. That's gonna make. It's going to make your classroom manageable, <laughs> right? And yeah. um, uh, so you know, there's, and I think that they, um, I think that they were very open to seeing. Okay, there is this craft to to teaching, um, and and they're they're willing to take on the challenge. You described yourself as an educational designer, which I I love that that phrase, and I think that probably dovetails with a lot of the the work that you do of of creating resources that mm-hmm. instructors I I'm assuming across the globe can use for these freely yeah. accessible resources. So describe some of the major projects that you've been involved in, things that you're mm-hmm. most proud of in that sphere. Yeah. So actually, the, the this work started in um, with, with a grant that started in 2005, and so um, um, my 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 colleague Karen Hollabrands and I um, were were dreaming up um, how to actually better prepare middle school and high school teachers to teach with technology, and we both had been researchers in that space and been working with students with different technology tools, and we recognized we have got to get ahead of the curve 
and, and put out teachers that are much more comfortable with technology. And so um, we wrote a grant um, to the National Science Foundation and um, started putting those materials together. And we had to pick a content domain to start in. And she mainly had done research in teaching and learning geometry. I had done work in teaching data and probability. And we decided to go with data and probability as our first um, content area that we were going to be focused on. Um, and so um, we, we, we worked on those. We, we developed video cases because we know that teachers learn a lot by actually watching and listening how students interact with things. And at the time, there were very few video cases that, that showed classrooms where technology was being used. And there was basically none where there was any statistics or data or probability happening. So um, we took that on to create some video cases. And um, so that's an example of those first kind of, first kind of materials that we created, um, and as well as lessons where you know, we, would have, we would have really rich tasks that the teachers would get engaged in as learners themselves using the technology. And then we would start unpacking the student thinking and the potential pedagogy behind that task. And um, so there would be this opportunity for them to experience it as a learner themselves, and now let's focus on, okay, well, if you, we were going to work with the same task with, with your future students, how do we actually go about that? And what are, what are things that you might have to anticipate as a teacher do, using this task in the classroom and using this particular technology tool? So that, that work continued. It's actually still going on today. So we have continued to add modules to that. Um, back in the day, we had um, um, spiral-bound textbooks with CDs in the back sleeve. And eventually around 2013, we transitioned to abandoning all books and CDs and, and creating things electronically and making them available for free. You know you have a successful project if it, if it has survived a major media change. <laughs> yes. yes, and that was that was a very painful media change. Oh, uh, gosh, I can only imagine. That, that took a lot of work. Um, but, uh, but once we made that transition, then the things that we continued to build after that, okay, we had a model of how to do this. Um, and then following from that, I had an opportunity to teach a MOOC for educators, a massive open online course for educators. And this was outside of actually my scope of being a college professor. This was connected to a grant um, that, was, that had been given from the Hewlett Foundation to the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation, which is at NC State. And I'm a senior faculty fellow there. And so they came to me and said, you know, we have a little bit of money left in this, in this grant. Um, what about taking some of your ideas around teaching statistics and create a MOOC? for teachers. And I had never taught an online class um, before. And this was 2014. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I, uh, you know, I, I, I finally took on the challenge. I had to think about it for a little while. Um, but that radically changed how I really thought about the kinds of ways that I could package instructional materials for learners. And, and those learners were, be, were, were practicing teachers uh, rather than college students um, preparing to be teachers. So that really just took me into a whole new direction of being able to think about how to package online materials that um, could, could provide, um, that could be modularized and could be, and could be um, chunked into smaller little bits that would have the highest level of impact. And um, since then, I have just been um, focused on that. I have, a, I have two, two main projects from... Um, 
the National Science Foundation where I'm focused on developing materials for pre-service teachers around statistics and data science. And then another one that we just launched in March, a free public online platform where it's actually, um, it can be personalized for educators um, where they can come in and, and we, we ask them a couple questions to learn a little bit about their background and their experiences. And then we suggest learning modules for them, kind of like your Amazon shopping experience. Yeah. Um, so that we say, okay, based on what we know about you, we think you could learn something by going to this module or going to this module. And a lot of that research came from the MOOCs where we studied what did teachers do and what, uh -huh. and what did they talk about in the discussion forums and what were those high impact materials. And so then we took a lot of those high impact materials and, and repackaged them into our, um, into our online platform. It's called instepwithdata.org. And um, th that, that just launched in March publicly. And we are super excited to be sharing that with the world. So whether it's research or practice, what are the what are the horizons or the frontiers in you can take your pick in either mathematics or statistics education? Oh, for me personally or research frontiers for in general? Well, maybe let's start with you personally and it might get broader. Okay. Okay. I mean, so for me personally, I mean, I I think that I need um, now that we have this public launch for this, for, so I'll, I'll just go from this particular website, um, this um, per personalized um, professional platform. Now that we have that there, I need to really study when teachers do come into this platform and engage in learning on their own time, what are they choosing? And being able to, to follow them back to the classroom to really understand what the impacts are back in their classroom and with their students. And um, that's that's something that, you know, when you're build, you, you build and build and build and build, and now you have to really take a, a very careful, um, systematic approach to um, studying the impact of it. And so that's that's on the horizon for me for that particular project. Um, for, I mean, research frontiers in in general in mathematics and statistics education. I think we need to. If we're introducing new pathways for students at the high school level um, where we're modernizing the curriculum, we need to understand who follows those different pathways and then what, what the successes are um, and what the challenges are. They're not, it's not all going to be successes, <laughs> you know. So what, what, what have we gotten right and what have we gotten wrong so that we can um, go back and fix it? Um, yeah. you know, I, I do worry that if we're not careful, you know, part of creating new pathways for students in high school is to solve the access and equity issues that we have, we have put up barriers to students where we don't give them access to high quality um, and rigorous um, uh, content and, and, and um, topics. And we're trying to solve that. But in doing so, I'm, I'm nervous that we will create, we, we might create more inequities than we, than we actually solve. And so, yeah. um, because it, 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 we, we have a lot of convincing to do for parents and guidance counselors and administrators that different pathways are, um, can lead to success <laughs> in different careers um, rather than a traditional looking um, math pathway. 
Well, we know that there's a lot of this growing interest, especially among humanities scholars, to sort of discover these uh, statistical tools and data science tools to, uh, to, to create a different or, or to leverage a different methodology for for yeah. what, what they do when they're studying texts or artifacts or right. or visuals or whatever it may be. So recognizing that you're not a, a higher ed educational specialist, but I think you've got enough experience here to kind of help us. What, what could instructors at the college level be doing to incorporate some of those data science tools into our yeah. teaching? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that there is a huge opportunity for that because um, really to understand, I think that data allows a window that we can learn with and through data to understand different phenomena. So, you know, if, if as you were mentioning, you, the humanities, understanding historical texts, mm -hmm. understanding um, the writing patterns of diff different authors from a data perspective, yeah. um, you know, can be incredibly powerful. So you can actually you can learn some of those um, rather than just being told what they are or, um, you know, reading, you know, you can only read so many texts, but if you, if you can have the machine yep. actually analyze some of these texts, and then it's your job to actually try to unpack what the patterns are, right? And, um, then, then, you know, you're asking now a different question in the, you know, in the social sciences, I mean, being able to look at census data, for example, and talk about economics, talk about um, civics issues, talk about um, kind of historical trends um, that, that have happened and being able to compare census snapshot data across time and see kind of how our US you know, demographics have changed, how our income levels have changed, how our educational um, outcomes have changed. You know, we can do all of that from a data perspective. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when, when you uh, release students into this data world, then they are creating those learning opportunities because then they're asking questions of the data. And so we're creating problem solvers at the same time. And so I think that that any instructor who can just take a take a, a mindset that the content that they teach, the, the phenomena that they want their students to understand could be understand, understood better through a data experience, yeah. um, you know, that, that and, and getting data sets that allow them to start playing, you know, so there's lots of different data warehouses out there. And, you know, in science, we're used to our students creating their own data sets because they are, you know, performing different experiments. Yep. And they're, they're collecting their own data. But there's also a, a wealth of scientific data that we can actually pull down from NASA. That we, can, mm -hmm. you know, we can pull down, we can pull from, you know, different um, OSHI. Um, there's just so many different data warehouses out there around different climate change, scientific information, that weather patterns that, um, you know, our students can actually think about and start questioning um, the world around them through data. And then there's the the visualization element of it too. You know, can you can you map it? Can you timeline it? That's right. That's can right. Can you create and, clouds of certain? And yeah. there's lots of tools that you can use that are low computational bar. Yeah. So one of the tools that I use is called CodeApp, um, but there's also tools like Tableau, um, and other kind of data visualization tools. That, that don't require a lot of coding. I think sometimes people think data science and they're like, oh, but I don't know how to code in R and Python. Mm -hmm. That's okay, you don't have to. 
In fact, you probably shouldn't when you first are, are, are looking at data. You need to use a tool that allows you to visualize the data very quickly and get in there and make it a playful experience. Mm -hmm. And if it's a painful coding experience, then you're not going to enjoy it. And you're not, yeah. you're going to be so you know, focused on particular lines of code that you're missing, you know, you're focusing on the trees and not the, and not the forest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some ways we owe it to our students to give them some experience with these tools, but also to show them, cause this is the, this is the direction many of our disciplines are moving to. And so we, we want to create an honest representation of what, what it means to make knowledge in our respective fields. And this is one way to do it. That's exactly right. I mean, thinking about um, the fact that we have biostatistics, that we have um, data journalism. I mean, there are so mm -hmm. many disciplines now that are the are the you know um, combination of a variety of different different fields, and they, they truly are interdisciplinary. I mean, data yep. journalism, I think, is just a wonderful story of how that kind of came about, and the fact that we have data storytellers, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, employed in the media, you know, and that and it, that's their job. Yeah. Uh, inconceivable uh, 10 years ago or <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, Holly Lynn Lee, thank you so much for joining the show today. So congratulations again on being named the Cherry Award winner for this past year and best of luck to you back in North Carolina. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Our thanks again to Dr. Holly Lynn Lee for joining the show today. You can find links to Holly Lynn's work and some of the data science tools we discussed in our show notes if you'll visit baylor.edu slash ATL slash podcast. You'll find this show in season three. If you are enjoying this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening and join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.